All right. Well, hello, Matt. Sorry, that was a little embarrassing. We could probably have a few people <laughs> join us late now. Apologize for that, everyone. Uh, I'm glad uh, people are sticking with us. Uh, first two minutes, we'll just wait for a couple of people to join us. Tweeted it out. I don't know, Matt, if you saw my tweet. I don't know if you want to tweet it too, or we can wait a few yeah, minutes and you could tweet it. I, I did tweet it out as well. Um, okay. You know, I think Good. most people do watch it on, on replay, though. So maybe we can. That's, okay. All right. Let's get started then. So, so for the outline, me and Matt, uh, well, just a backstory, Matt and I met for the first time at this conference in Miami we're at this week. It's exciting to see Matt and, uh, and for the first time in person, we've been working virtually for the past 10 months uh, on this business. And um, so that was great. And uh, what else, Matt? We came at the probably the worst week of the year in terms of market <laughs> volatility. Uh, we've, yeah, we, we were thinking like, okay, January, be a good time. You know, we think Tesla will be doing a lot better. Our, our, our thesis will look smart then and, and we'll, we'll look like a, a couple of smart investors who can show off some, some great returns. And it seems like the, the exact opposite has happened. So um, yeah. but I think tomorrow is kind of the, the key day. Um, you, obviously, yep. we've got the FOMC meeting, in the, uh, which is going to be, uh, I think that's probably the, the single biggest factor uh, that, that'll move markets. Uh, and then obviously, Tesla earnings right after that. So um, you know, Netflix kind of started off earnings season on a, on a sour note, but I do think yeah. uh, with Tesla in particular, but a, a couple other names as well, I, I think there, there will be some Microsoft kind of clear winners today. who are, you know, yeah. showing really great operational results. And I think that'll help call markets as, as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've been talking about, um, you know, the, the Fed, we, we've been talking to some other potential investors at this conference, uh, institutional type folks that are probably not a good fit for our fund. Actually, we realized as we started this conference, but it was a fun uh, um, ex experience nonetheless. But it seems that the consensus is that the Fed is going to probably soften its language, kind of react to the market downturn and and do something like, you know, soften its language so that it doesn't want to spook the markets into a bear market. You know, that would be pretty, yeah. it, it, you know, that would not be a good look for them and the, and the Biden administration and politics, they would not like that either. It would make, uh, if the economy started getting less uh, confident because of markets crashing, it would just not be a good look for the Democrats, especially. So, you know, I think that there's reason to believe the Fed will soften its language and this week is sort of like the apex of uncertainty and volatility and, whether we just kind of stabilize at this level and slowly trade sideways for a while, or we kind of rebound quickly, I'm not sure, but uh, we're, we're very bullish on Tesla nonetheless. Yeah. You, you know, I think it's, it's very unclear what markets are going to do from here. Um, but, but you've got really great growth names trade trading in like value stock territory. I mean, looking at our, our portfolio right now, which all the names that, that we like have been hit really hard in the last, you know, two months. Um, but like Lemonade is trading, we were just talking about this, like just high, uh, just a little bit higher than their cash balance, which is like, they've got a great valuation backstop with that. Tesla's trading at a forward PE uh, based on my estimates of, of about 50. And, and so like the, if you start looking at the peg ratio on that, it's like insanely cheap. Um, so, you know, I think if these companies execute on their business, which is, we talk a lot about macro and like macro is important. You got to watch it. It's, it's obviously driving markets right now, but over the long term, it's really going to be the business fundamentals that drive shareholder value. Um, and so I think, you know, with with prices where they are right now, it's a really good time to be deploying capital. So uh, yeah. as disheartening as it can be, kind of on a day to day basis, I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic about where we go from here. Yeah, me too. I mean, 
and this volatility, like it reminds me a little bit of 2008 or even more recently, 2020, where the market can suddenly drop 5% and rebound in the same day. Like yesterday was real roller coaster. You know, I think there's just so much uncertainty with um, the norm, you know, the liquidity providers today are high frequency traders, not market makers anymore. Market makers are kind of right. required, were, were in the past the liquidity providers, you know, decades ago. But in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, high frequency traders have competed the market makers out of business and they don't have to follow the same rules. And one of those being they don't have to maintain two sided quotes at all times. So when they feel times are uncertain, they can just pull their liquidity altogether, press a button and turn off all their bids and offers. And then all of a sudden the spreads are wider and markets move much faster when someone's buying or selling. And I think we saw that yesterday. And so I think if the market can stabilize somewhere, you know, after the FOMC kind of put some more certainty into what's going on with rates in the near future, then I think you'll get, you know, liquidity providers coming back slowly again, because they just don't want the risk of trying to provide to, it's not profitable for them to, you know, keep providing liquidity or two-sided quotes when they feel like the market could be very volatile, right? So, so once they come back, uh, you'll see less drastic movements again. And whether we get a 1% down day or 2% up day, you know, that to me, that's probably going to be the norm again for a while um, versus these wild swings of 5 or 6% up and down, which is it's just crazy. It's not fun for anyone, really. Yeah, I mean, VIX is at a at a crazy high right now. Uh, but like even looking at, at last week, uh, Friday, obviously, you had a, a big kind of options expiration day. There was a lot of really good commentary around that, um, mm -hmm. you know, is uh, it to me that the price movement really made sense on, on fr Friday when you looked at like the, the Delta hedging exposure of uh, uh, expiring options and people have to decide what to do. You either, either take delivery of the shares and you exercise yeah. these deep in the money calls or yeah. you you sell them and, and roll it into something else. Uh, but either way, uh, if, if that's kind of uh, the prevailing market sentiment, uh, Delta exposure, like the Delta hedging of the market makers um, is, is going to kind of accentuate downward price movements. So mm -hmm. um, to me, there's a lot of kind of explainable reasons why the, why the markets are, are kind of doing what they're doing right now. Uh, but the opportunity is is pretty, pretty drastic on the upside in, in my mind. Um, yeah. Obviously, there, there's uncertainty. And I think if, if this, you know, Russia, Ukraine situation really deteriorates, I think that that could have a, a detrimental effect. But, um, uh, you know, even, even that, like in the in the long run, uh, will be kind of noise compared to just the the operational uh, execution of, of, of the companies. So mm -hmm. um, you, got, you got to just have thick skin during these times, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thick skin and be willing to ride these ups and down, you know, as long term investors and the names that we're convicted on. This, you know, th this is in the realm of possibilities of, of what we sort of put as a possible scenario, of, you know, this type of volatility. So we knew that this type of down move is, is, if not likely, very possible and it's happening. And even more of a down move is very possible. You know, I'm not sure it's likely, but um, you just have to be ready for, for these uh, roller coasters. But, you know, have the eye and the prize on the long term, like the fundamentals of the company, Tesla in particular, like we're very convicted that it was still going to be the largest company by the end of the decade, if not much sooner. And uh, so we're, we're happy about it. And when we get a chance, we try to get more shares or, or whatever at attractive prices when we can. So earnings tomorrow, that, that's the big day, Wednesday, the FOMC line, I think that comes out at two o'clock Eastern time. And then like two hours later, you got Tesla earnings being released. It's just like a crazy 
two yeah. or four hours there and the earnings call right after that with all the controversial uh, questions and such being asked. And so, <laughs> so it's just, uh, it's going to be exciting for like a good four hours. I don't know. I feel like uh, I'm looking forward to that, even though it's like cringeworthy because you, you don't want it, you know, when these things happen, you just don't know how the market's going to really react. I mean, I'm hopeful that the market's going to be positive. We've had so much down downward pressure the last several weeks that you, you think the rubber band's got to come back and this could be the catalyst tomorrow. But what if it's not? What if tomorrow causes more down movement, you know, and the stocks are yeah. tanking another 5% tomorrow and Tesla earnings for some reason doesn't surprise or wow people enough and it goes down 5 or 10% after hours. I mean, that's also in the realm of possibility. Short term is anything can happen. But, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the more time, more chances you get at these types of opportunities, more often it's going to, than not, it'll, it'll be positive because I feel like we're set up for some positive, you know, uh, returns again after such a downward move the last few weeks. And with Tesla earnings, I think gross margins, you know, so you have any new insight on Tesla earnings, Matt, or any thoughts about any updated thoughts? I mean, tell everyone what, what your projections are in the model again and, and what your updated kind of projections are. Yeah, so uh, we walked through this in detail uh, a couple of weeks ago, but um, you know, essentially I'm estimating $2.95 of adjusted EPS. Uh, I think consensus uh, is something like $2.33 right now. Um, so, so huge upside potential, you know, if if I'm right, um, you know, in, in yeah. terms of like the automotive gross margins is the, the biggest thing. Uh, I do think we could surprise on credits, but you know, there's a decent chance the the market discounts any any sort of news on on that regards. Um, but you know, you know, I think like we were talking about this before. It's just the fundamentals of the company. Like when Tesla disclosed like the the absolute blowout, um, you know, deliveries in Q4, um, the stock rallied to twelve hundred dollars. Like it was it was kind of um, and people were thinking, okay, new all-time high tomorrow, and then it was like down seven percent, like for two weeks in a row, yeah. um, every every single day, seemingly. Um, so, like, the fundamentals of the company hasn't changed. The earnings print was already locked in at the time, like that that P and D report was uh, released. Um, and so, really, I think all that's happened is is like the the um, price that you can buy, like the, this this upside potential, looks even better now um, in my mind. So, you know, I, I don't have any, any, you know, new insights per se. I'm sure we'll have a ton to, to digest tomorrow. And, and I don't know, maybe we'll have a chance to do a live stream or something to, uh, to digest it um, in, in real time. But um, yeah, I, I think there's just, it's going to be a, a big quarter. Um, I, I'm pretty convinced, like, unless I'm, I'm drastically wrong on uh, how efficient Shanghai in particular has, has become uh, in the price increases that we're rolling through, like, to to me, I, I would be absolutely shocked if if the numbers came in close to like two thirty three, which is where Wall Street thinks it is. Now maybe it'll yeah. be two seventy, maybe it'll be two fifty. Even I think Gary Black's around two fifty. I'd be pretty disappointed if they were that low. But I don't mm. think um, the general market participants um, are are kind of expecting you know two ninety to three dollars, which is where most of the the Tesla Twitter analysts are, are coming in right now. Yeah. So yeah. it's the disconnect has, seems like it's never been higher than, than like right now at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to think that the whisper number, which is sort of like defined by like buy side uh, institutional portfolio managers or analysts, which are not the sell side analysts that publish the research that we all see where you get the 233 consensus or whatnot. But the whisper number by the buy side analysts, you got to think that's much higher than the 233. 
what is it 250 or is it 270 i don't know where that whisper number is that they with that whatever they call it so it's sort of got to beat that whisper number i think for you know that itself to have a positive net reaction on the stock um so we'll find out i guess tonight but ibm you know value stock as it is uh i guess had some pretty decent earnings and it popped a little bit for a little while last night. Uh, you know, it didn't stay there, I guess. I don't know what it's doing today. But... <laughs> you can't trust these after hours numbers. Like no. what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is like, just, it doesn't really matter what the numbers are. It doesn't matter what the stock does after hours. Like the, the next day, it's the volume yeah. just has been coming in and, and dictating things. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you can't trust it. I mean, with this market, Tesla could be up, you know, 10% after hours and give it all back by the open the next morning. You know, that's that certainly is in the realm of possibilities. But, you know, the fundamentals, nonetheless, the fundamentals of Tesla are going to gain a lot of strength from this earnings report. We saw the Moody's upgrade last night. What what are your thoughts about them? And did you have a chance to take a look at that? Yeah. So, like, it's it's so ridiculous because they, they're like the upper realm of junk territory now. Yeah. One level from crazy. investment grade. Yeah. Right. Um, but they've got um, like more cash on hand than than debt on the balance sheet. They've got like crazy free cash flow. Um, this is this is maybe getting a little bit into into nerd territory, but there's a really um, good good like financial metric that measures bankruptcy risk essentially, which is mm -hmm. it's called the Altman Z score. Um, okay. And so like for creditors, that's what they care about. Like they don't really care about the upside potential of your stock. They want to know about like the the downside. Are you going to like burn so much cash flow that you can't pay your debt back? Yeah. Um, and so th th there's this Altman Z score, which like um, if you have like a, a one, you're you're a very high bankruptcy risk. If you have like a three, you're you're pretty solid. Uh, and mm -hmm. Tesla's Altman Z score right now, James Stevenson posted this a while ago, is 21. <laughs> so it's like, My like even like with backward looking financial metrics, like Tesla has a, a fortress balance sheet um their their cash flows are like phenomenal and and like this to have like a a, a junk bond rating right now um with the ca kind of cash flows and and like a 90 percent equity to debt ratio uh that they have if you're looking at like market cap compared it's probably it's, a, it's actually a lot higher than 90 percent must be um but like it, like it, it makes no sense it's just such such a slow moving kind of organization to um it just it's it's kind of befuddling like these are the same groups that got all the um risk of it within the financial system during 2008 so wrong um and and we're you know essentially selling credit ratings uh for fees and we're not really doing any sort of diligence on like the underlying mortgage-backed securities which were so like uh, critical to the, the unraveling of the financial system at that time they were getting all yeah. these AAA ratings and now like on the opposite end of the spectrum something's super safe and Tesla just has, you know, a junk bond rating. It, it makes zero sense to me whatsoever. Um, yeah. Good to see the the rating. The market didn't seem to care about it too much. Um, no, but it's, it's they need to investment grade. Yeah, if they just were one notch higher, it would change maybe some institutionals institutions' ability to buy Tesla. Uh, you know, there's certain rules. Certain funds have to follow mutual funds or whatnot. They can maybe only buy a certain amount of stock unless it's investment grade, or they can't buy it at all unless it's. I don't know. So you know, it's probably, it could be trivial or it could be marginal or it could be impactful. I guess we'll find out eventually when Tesla does get upgraded to investment grade, you know, we'll, we'll see in the following days or weeks, if that has a more meaningful impact on the stock price at that time. Um, so yeah, that's interesting.
Um, I mean, I see some comments uh, about the Ukraine situation uh, with Russia. I mean, it seems like some people are in Ukraine and, and, and people in Ukraine are, are, are thinking that it's high likelihood of Russia starting a war, um, invading. I know there's a lot of talk about that. And some people think some of the market volatility, the volatility is related to that. Do you think it's related to that? I'm not so sure. I mean, I think that's a scary situation. I'm not saying it's not. Um, just like the Afghanistan situation, you know, a year or two that's still going on. Um, but you don't want to see, um, you know, governments, you know, or political uh, calamities happen that causes lots of, you know, human suffering, obviously. That's, you know, not necessary a lot of times. Maybe it could be dealt with more politely or uh, not politely, but more, more, more peacefully. <laughs> more, <laughs> more peacefully. Yeah, humanely. Yeah. So, but I, but at the same time, I'm not sure the markets are so worried about that. I mean, I know there's saying, oh, it could disrupt the whole energy, um, you know, industry in Europe and whatnot. But we've had like, I could be wrong, but we've had all kinds of uh, political, you know, unrest in Eastern Europe before and in the Middle East. And, you know, yeah, sure, headlines love, you know, can bring it up and talk. And it's worrisome. And But I'm not sure the actual U.S. stock market has tons of jitters because of that itself. I, you know, what do you think, Matt? Do you think yeah. it's a big deal or no? Well, like I always hate to uh, take very serious, you know, issues like this and, and only comment on like the, the impacts of the market and like our portfolio. So yeah. like first and foremost, like my, my prayers, good and thoughts go out to all the, the families that are, are dealing yeah. with this. And um, like, Me this too. is a human, you know, potential tragedy in the works. And, and I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. Um, but that said, like, it's certainly not helping market jitters right now. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I do tend to agree with you that it's, it's probably not like the cause of, you know, the, the, the significant downturn that, that we've seen in the last, you know, a couple, couple weeks and days. Um, the, the, I think the, the potential to, for Russia to, um, like halt natural gas exports, um, you know, in, in the middle of, of winter is, is a very like real risk to the European economy. But we've actually seen that uh, they did that. I don't remember the exact time frame, but something like five years ago, um, you know, they kind of just exercised their power and stopped natural gas exports. Um, I think it was to Poland. I, I could be wrong on that. Mm -hmm. um, but like they, they've got some like pretty serious uh, heft they can throw around and so you could imagine if they did that for you know extended like a whole season of, of winter that could have much more drastic impacts than like a a, a day or two or like a week-long issue um so like if, if they start going down that route and, and really play hardball like with with the economy and then you got you know tanks rolling in, in ukraine um that could certainly kind of spark fears i think the the biggest risk to markets would be if there's some sort of um like contagion where uh other other european players come in like to, to try to defend ukraine and, and you get like the this mm -hmm. the the larger powers kind of facing off against each other i mean that's that's not a uh a prospect that investors would, would like to see where you no don't want you know, to see that yeah. I don't know if that can happen either, though. Like, I can't imagine a scenario so. where you have it's actually people like, like like armies firing guns at each other again. You know, like it's a different world. It's like there's cyber proxy war and the thing proxy right now. wars. Yeah, yeah, like militias hired to fight other militias. You know, it's just it's a different world. Drone strikes. Um, it's a different world. So I don't know what it's going to look like. Hopefully, nothing too terrible. I mean, it's 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 not good, no matter what. 
Um, but I have no idea yeah. what it's going to look like. It's not going to be, you know, tanks rolling in, shooting their guns. You know, the tanks are just kind of a symbol, I feel like, at this point. I, th I, think, I think that's right, yeah. But, you know, looking looking forward, it's, it's very easy to get uh, caught up in, like, the the, the uh, all the horrible news and the, the risk in, like, a, yeah. a one- to two-week time frame. But, you know, looking to, like, one year from right now, um, I, I think this will not be a major issue. Uh, you know, I think the, the Fed will have um, changed policy a little bit, but not in any sort of dramatic fashion. I, I'd be surprised if rates are much higher than, uh, than you know, like two and a half percent. And and then you, you're going to have kind of more operational excellence for, from companies. And, and just w given a long enough time frame, um, I think a lot of the things that we're so worried about right now will seem like smaller impact items. So mm -hmm. um, I, I do think there's just huge upside right now because everyone's in fear, right? Like people are seeing so much red day after day, week after week. You know, I, I'm sure margin calls are kind of exacerbating yeah. selling going on right now. Um, but, you know, you, you can't go um, underneath um, some valuation thresholds for extended periods of time without money kind of flowing back into them. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm very optimistic on on even kind of like the medium term right now. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, well, why don't we just go to a bunch of Q and A at this point? Unless there's something else you wanted to bring up. I mean, there's a lot of people who have questions about the market volatility. You know, we're as nervous about it as everyone, um, but we'll try to go through as many questions about whatever it is: Tesla earnings, stocks, market volatility, as as people can. Unless Matt, do you have anything else you wanted to bring up or? First. No, let's, let's uh, dive into okay. Q&A. I think we, we lost a bit of time on our uh, technical yes. issues at, at the beginning. So let's jump Sorry in. Sorry about that, guys. Question from Alex B. Based on your experience, what are the criteria for brokers to increase the margin rate using interactive? He's using interactive brokers. So brokers have the right to increase margin anytime they want. Um, you know, whether they want to have a reputation of increasing margin more conservatively than every other broker, that's another question, you know, because that reputation means they're going to lose some business, obviously, if they have that reputation. So it seems to me like in my experience working in the brokerage industry that, you know, there are some brokers that are a bit more conservative. I'd say interactive brokers tends to be in that. Uh, but that's actually a good thing in some cases, because if there is a major flash crash that's real um you know other brokers their customers could be in debt more than the equity they have in their accounts and the brokers might not have enough capital on their balance sheet to pay for it could it could be a bad situation in a world ending black swan not a world ending but a real bad black swan event if they suddenly wake up and the markets are cut in half for example like you could actually lose all your equity at other brokers maybe but at someone like interactive brokers i feel like they're less likely they have a more much more capitalized well capitalized and they they do automatic margin uh, liquidations and such so in such a bad situation i think you're more likely to you know retain your account if the market got cut in half overnight for example before people could liquidate their positions and high leverage people you know so there's pros and cons you got to think about but in in my experience you know when the market's really volatile like it is now or a particular stock gets super volatile with game stock or not and we saw a game stock a little bit too where it sort of seems like all the brokers sort of move in some sort of unison. Um, and, uh, you know, if they all decide, if, if you know, they sort of decide to increase the GameStop margin all at once to 100% or ban short selling all at once, or maybe in 2008 when the market crashed, they all said, okay, we're increasing uh, 
futures margin requirement by 50% all at once. So, so sometimes when there's a, you know, a major market meltdown of a stock or an industry, it seems like all the brokers kind of coordinate their efforts uh, in some, some way. But, uh, you know, I mean, the margin requirements can be increased anytime uh, by the broker. So just be prepared for that. I would say typically they give you a warning ahead of time, but it's not required. And if you look at the fine print of their agreements. Okay, from Andrew Brazil, uh, Tesla retail investors have rightly, I believe, developed high expectations for Q4 earnings. To what extent do you think those expectations have now been baked into the share price? Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't think they have been. Um, I mean, we talked about this a little bit so far already, but um, we, we've seen the stock just falling. So on the back of, you know, really good, um, production and delivery numbers and rising earnings per share estimates both from you know wall street but especially from uh, like uh, retail investors um in that backdrop you've seen the stock plummet um so to me um you you have a disconnect between you know, kind of what the share price has been doing and um where expectations have gone or, or at least where mm -hmm. I would maybe say like uh, the most informed um, uh, analyst expectations have gone. So, um, you know, I, I don't think we, we've seen this in the past sometimes where, you know, there's been a like sell the news kind of situation. And, and of course that can certainly happen here again. Uh, anything's possible in the short term, but it seems uh, more likely than not to me uh, that the magnitude of the, of the disconnect between what like, Tesla Twitter analysts are expecting and what Wall Street's expecting. It's about the biggest disconnect I've ever seen. Um, and, and you have that in a backdrop of uh, like plummeting share price. So I, I don't really think that the um, like earnings, increased earnings expectations are, are really in, in any meaningful way kind of baked into the share price right now. So um, yeah, I, I'd be I don't want to get too kind of like predictive, predictive on, on where I think the share price is going to go. Uh, but based on some of the other setups we've seen, seen going into quarterly prints, it seems like it's a it's a better setup than than most in recent memory. Yeah, I mean, if the stars line up too, I mean, I've talked about this Dave Lee on the last week's uh, last this weekend's investing call. And I think I tweeted about it once, but if the stars line the right way and like the FOMC is softer and the markets, you know, the buyers come back in force and Tesla has surprise, you know, surprises most of most of Wall Street it wouldn't surprise us probably, but it would surprise most of, you know, institutional finance with really upside earnings. So if the stars align just right, you know, I could see Tesla having like such a historic stock price reaction to this. Um, you know, whether that's 10 or 30% chance, I'm not sure, but there's certainly a chance where there's sort of like a historic, uh, thing going on here where the market's rebounding anyway, and Tesla has historic, you know, numbers with a huge disconnect yeah. from what was expected by institutional and it just compounds. It was like, it'd be like, you know, it, it, it would be something we talk about years to come. Like, remember that fourth quarter <laughs> earnings print and. 2021 that happened when the market was collapsing and Tesla saved the market or, you know, whatever it is, this narrative could be something like that potentially, but you know, the stars can align. I see, I can see the stars aligning for that potentially. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't yeah. think it's not probable, but it's certainly in the realm of possibilities in my mind. Well, especially since you've got Elon on the call too. I mean, you could have yeah. like better Surprise macro coming out of the FOMC meeting. You could have a really strong earnings print and then you could have 
some kind of ambitious, you know, really good news on like a product yeah. development front. Uh, and so if you have those yeah. two factors, yeah, I, I could see what you're What if he says we got uh, battery suggesting. costs even lower than we said on battery day? Like what if he says, oh yeah, <laughs> we figured out ways to get the battery costs even half the yeah. price of what we thought, you know, or something like that. I mean, maybe investors, it's time for them to eat it up, you know, now that the, Tesla does what they say and they start realizing that. Who knows? Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting possibility, you know. Um, so from Jim Chemo 11, uh, do you think that China is stealing Tesla's IP? If so, what could Tesla do to protect itself? So I do think there's, um, you know, a passive sharing of IP on maybe manufacturing uh, efficiencies or manufacturing capabilities. And, and there was that kind of claim that Xpeng took some code early on from Tesla's auto autopilot uh, technology. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think Tesla uh, is innovating faster than even anyone could copy them anyway. So even if China is, you know, copying them, you know, to some degree, you know, they might be better copy at copying them than anyone else in the world, which it seems could be the case. And that's why Tesla, Chinese EV makers are like the serious contenders to Tesla versus anywhere else in the world at this point. But there are certain things, you know, that like the like the Tesla full self-driving technology with their, you know, AI, Tesla AI, you know, uh, and the neural networks and, you know, real world AI applications of that, that I think Tesla is so far in the weeds on that it's probably very difficult to copy in my mind. Um, so I think mm -hmm. there's some kind of unique inherent advantage there with Tesla that's very hard to kind of carry to another company, even if it was somewhat, you know, unless it was like, you know, stealing like the top five AI engineers and they could bring all the code with them, which, you know, that would not happen. But I just don't see that kind of uh, intellectual property being taken by another company very easily. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, actually. Um, I think even if they were to steal like the latest up to date, you know, 10, version 10.9 of full self-driving, that's not particularly useful to any other company because they don't have the same hardware set up as Tesla. Uh, they don't have the kind of AI backbone to uh, iterate on that to get to the point where you know, it could potentially be like an autonomous vehicle in the future. So I think mm -hmm. even if they could steal that uh, somehow, uh, like Xpeng apparently did, um, I, I think it's going to be uh, problematic for that to actually be useful. Um, yeah. But I do think it's it's probably pretty likely that there's a good amount of, you know, whether it's there's a difference between like intellectual property and, and kind of like uh, company know-how. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's a good amount of like manufacturing know-how that, um, you know, the Chinese are are picking up just, just from how efficient the, the Shanghai factory is. So I think that's a, a reasonable assumption that, you know, you'll see the, the, the other Chinese EV makers continue to get really good at manufacturing, manufacturing. Um, whether it's it's stealing like individual uh like designs uh from the the shanghai factory or it's just kind of a, a more benign um like you know like workplace knowledge that that they're just getting from having chinese workers at the site i yeah. think it's it's reasonable to assume that that's going on yeah and china does i mean tesla gets a lot of benefits from china i mean it's not stealing chinese work ethic or anything like that but they get a huge advantage just being in China with the work. And we see the production out of Shanghai. That could not be done anywhere else in the world, in my opinion. I don't even think Giga 
uh, you know, Austin or Giga Berlin are going to be able to ramp up as a fish. I don't think they'll ever be as cost effective as Giga Shanghai. I just think China is a manufacturing monster and, you know, they're mm. just going to outperform. I mean, look at Foxconn, what they've done, you know, just, I just don't see, I think Tesla gets tremendous advantages from uh, working in China as well. And I think those advantages are, are worth more than maybe some, you know, copying of their efficiencies or whatnot we'll, we'll see but you combine it just to it, you know it's mutual to some degree uh yeah. so we'll go to the next question next question oh by the way what's up farzad i see farzad in the chat here i was on his channel uh a few weeks ago really really cool uh his channel if anyone hasn't seen it check it out so from hit that bit oh this is from uh yashu okay yashu's here too do you think tesla claims the tax credit on the q4 report matt you have some thoughts on this right yeah, I, I think he's uh, probably referring to the uh, NOL um, kind of carry forward. So, you know, they, they've got these these net operating losses from, you know, their whole history. Essentially, they were not profitable. Uh, so they had billions of dollars in, in losses, which which uh, can be offset uh, in the future. Uh, but they actually never uh, booked those uh, because in the past it has been improbable in the, the eyes of the auditors, um, that Tesla would be profitable enough to uh, recognize the, the benefit of the tax losses that they can carry forward. Um, so, and it's a, it's a really large number. I, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but if memory serves me, if memory serves me, it's over a billion dollars. Um, yeah. So I, I think it seems like now more than ever, seems like it would be the right time to claim that the, 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 the kind of uh, write up on, on the net operating losses. Uh, there's essentially like a, 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 a haircut that they're applying to to it on the balance sheet. And so if they reverse that haircut, then you'd have a one-time benefit kind of flowing through the income statement. Um, but I don't mm -hmm. think it's gonna be particularly meaningful. I mean, even if they if they do have that, you'll have this like crazy gap earnings print of, you know, I don't know, over a billion dollars. Um, and that would probably get some headlines, but I think most sophisticated investors would say, okay, well, that's only like an accounting mechanism to kind of true it up. Um, there's some marginal benefit in terms of kind of uh, lowering like cash taxes paid going forward. Uh, but the tax, like the, when you recognize that isn't really that impactful. So um, to me, I don't think even if, if they do claim the whole amount, I don't think it's going to be a, a really material kind of impact for, you know, for the stock. So I don't, yeah. Um, yeah, me and you differ on this a little bit. It. Like you and James Stevenson, I think even Dave Lee thinks it's sort of likely, but I, I am skeptical. You know, I sort of differ on this. I remember a year ago thinking it was like, you know, somewhat likely it was going to happen this quarter or next quarter, you know, and it hasn't happened. I think they're being ultra conservative and waiting until full self-driving goes to wide release. And that'll be probably later this year in my mind. But I think that's when they'll- well, uh, are, you, are you talking about the, the deferred revenue balance or the, yeah, yeah. the, the tax loss? Because there's- Oh. Because those, those are two different things, actually, because there's okay. the, the tax, uh, the net operating losses, which is just like a tax, you know, accounting treatment thing. Okay. And then there's the uh, deferred revenue for the full self-driving. Um, and, and that's a, that's more meaningful, I think. But I, I, yeah. I agree with you. I think I think the, the full self-driving deferred it. revenue balance is unlikely to-, to uh, Yes be recognized in q4 i think it's unlikely in q1 even honestly but we'll see yeah 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 sorry i confused the two but i'll have to all right next question let's see here from jarno tiny when do you think the semi starts to flow in numbers from tesla that's a good question maybe part of the product roadmap announcement by elon will 
say something about that. Uh, I know we we all know that they're giving their first deliveries to Pepsi pretty soon. Um, you know, they've been battery constrained uh, for a while. I have a, someone on Twitter DM'd me who's been tracking very closely the CATL relationship with Tesla and CATL's progress and mm -hmm. uh, the batteries. And he, he, he sent me like a spreadsheet he's been working on and seemed pretty legit. And he's got a lot of followers actually. And he seems to understand what he's talking about. He really believes that um, they are no longer battery, battery cell supply constrained, even without the 4680s being in production yet. Like that CATL has mm -hmm. really ramped things up um, and that, you know, Tesla is going to really be able to produce a ton more cars now, even without the 4680 yet. So that'd be great. I mean, I, I hope that's the case. Um, so maybe that's a nice upside surprise. And if that's the case, I could see Tesla semi coming faster than uh, expected. Because I think a lot of the holdup is, you know, they don't have enough batteries for the Model Y and Model 3 demand. So, you know, that's what they've got a good production lines building out efficiently with good gross margins. And, you know, up to, I think most people think that once they kind of saturate that enough, then they'll ramp up semis, Tesla semi. But that could be, you know, no one knows when that's going to be. They got to catch up with the battery uh, constraints with supply and demand versus the Model 3 and Model Y. So that could be, you know, I, I was assuming that was going to be like, until 4680s are really ramped up and that could be a year or two still, you know, I don't know. So this guy who DM me seems to think it's like now, like now is the time where they're not battery constrained anymore. So I don't know, do you have any thoughts about it, Matt? Yeah, it, I, I, I do agree with you that it does, uh, even in the language on the last couple of earnings calls, they, they used to talk about battery constraints and they, they talked a lot more about semiconductors recently mm. as, as opposed to batteries being the constraint. Um, mm. So, I'm sure it's always kind of a moving target of, of what particular supply chain issue is, is like the single biggest bottleneck at any given point in time. Uh, but but to my to my mind, it seems like the the build out that they've done to to really kind of um, optimize the original Gigafactory in Nevada has gone very well. They're they're building out you know the um, the new dedicated. Um, Megapack factory, which is 40 gigawatt hours, and that's mm -hmm. that's going to go a long way, I think, towards um, alleviating some of the um, the supply constraints that they were seeing on the on the car side. Because now they they're not going to need to dedicate any of um, the automotive like battery supply to to those stationary storage applications. So that's a really big deal in my mind. Um, but I, I don't know about how that translates into when the, the semi numbers start coming in. I, I'm kind of in in my own mind thinking it's going to be like pilot projects and like maybe deliveries in the dozens for the next year, maybe two. Um, and, and I think they're, they want to probably get Cybertruck out first and then focus on like semi and roadster. Yeah. Yeah. From Aaron Gray, now that lemonade trades at three X next year's gross premium, how do you guys plan on managing this stock over the next year? We were, it's funny you say that we were just talking about that, uh, with a potential investor um, lemonade. Um, I mean, we, we're trying to model out, we need to model out how long uh, it would take to, you know, burn through all their existing cash, which, you know, we think is at least two years, perhaps much longer, especially if they're growing. And, um, but we think they're going to grow fast enough where <laughs> that's not even going to be an issue. I mean, what do you, Matt, do you want to say something? Yeah, I, I, I think it, I'm not sure where that three times next year's gross premium number comes from. I think it's actually a lot higher than that. Um, mm. But in, in my mind, the, uh, the the kind of backstop to valuation right now is on their, their cash balance. So they've got, I think,
think it's 1.1 billion. It's something, it's about a billion dollars in cash on the balance sheet. Um, and the, and the stock is trading, you know, at under $2 billion or uh, like about $2 billion right now. Um, I was actually just looking at the, at the financials before we, we jumped on here and in the last 12 months, they burned $115 million in operating cash flow. So wow, they've essentially it. got 12 like months, 10 years. Yeah. For oh 12, 12 months. They've got like 10 years then of, of cash burn at the current wow. rates, uh, which you'd have to believe if they're successful in scaling the way that they think they are, then, you know, that, that burn rate would uh, decrease over time and eventually flip positive. So in my mind, they've got this like huge war chest, which can kind of sustain them. There's, there's very little bankruptcy risk. At, at this point, I think that the risk is um, they are kind of unsuccessful in scaling. And so they do kind of burn through that, that cash pile over the next five, 10 years. And, uh, the stock, you know, comes down against that kind of backstop in, in value. Um, but the the upside potential is so massive uh, on the other side, I think, um, that I, I'm just, I don't know, I, I, th I think it's it's a great time to be going aggressive into into lemonade right now, because I, I think- Yeah, the, the I just checked are... 1.75 billion market cap. That's crazy for the potential. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm- you know, it seems like a really potentially high payoff if right. I mean, it's a binary outcomes, you know, situation like we talk about. We don't know necessarily. We talked about it on our lemonade interview with a paper bag investor, if anyone hasn't seen it. But at the end, we gave our odds. I said it's like 50-50 whether they're going to be really successful or, or they kind of dwindle out and get acquired eventually for pennies on the dollar from where they are now. Um, that's my projections because I know I'm biased already from researching it and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> So I put 50, 50, but Matt, you were like 80, 20, right? I mean, you were pretty aggressively yeah. uh, in thinking that the, the binary positive outcome of it being successful was like 80%. That's pretty high conviction. Well, their, their, their customer satisfaction is just so high. Um, and, and it's, it's hard to bet against um, a, a product that customers really love. Um, so they've got a lot of work to do to execute, to really kind of earn that like 10 X return that we think is possible. Um, but mm -hmm. I think it's, they've got all the right pieces in place. Um, there was another yeah. question on here. I'll just talk to it uh, briefly, but somebody was asking about the, the, the questions of the customer acquisition cost. And, you know, I think if you, if you we have done a deep dive in, into a lot of those kind of current metrics right now. Um, and they don't look super great, to be honest with you. Like, you know, you're essentially acquiring customers at a cost of, I think it's about two, year, two years worth of premium. Two years of premium, yeah. Um, and, so and that's they only last like, about about three yeah. years on average. So like that looks really terrible. Um, and and so I get why that would be scaring people off, and I kind of get why the the stock is is kind of falling uh, when those are the metrics that they're posting. Um, but if you if you look a little bit deeper, and especially their optionality to increase uh, premium per customer, that to me is like the one of the biggest um, like. Uh, unheralded um, benefit that they have because the average customer, I think is, I did a calculation, uh, uh, Lemonade's getting about $140 in revenue. So not premium, but revenue uh, per customer right now. Um, mm -hmm. But it's because it's they're on all these um, low margin, low, low dollar value products like um, renters and pet insurance, which which are, you know, like small dollar value, obviously. Uh, but as those 
people in their like kind of young 20s, which is their their kind of core market right now, age up and buy houses and get married and, you know, kind of go through that life maturation process where they, you know, their their dollar spend becomes a lot more valuable. It's very uh, likely in my mind that a good chunk of those customers will stay with Lemonade and will upgrade to auto insurance and will upgrade to home insurance. And so then mm -hmm. you'll have a situation where you're, you know, not only growing your customer base by, I don't know, call it 30% a year or something like that, but your premium per customer ha has the potential potential to about 10x uh, if they're super mm -hmm. successful. And so then like the, all the financials of the company look drastically different if that scenario pans out. Um, so I I really, I think it's, uh, there's a very decent chance that, that that kind of thesis pans out over five or 10 years. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's true. Five or 10 years, very confident. Um, and uh, yeah, the next two or three years, it could be, you know, they just acquired Metro Mile, you know, that I think six months or so is when they expect the acquisition to kind of go through officially and could be another several months before integration see, looks, you know, you see results of their actual yeah. integration with Metro Mile. So it could be a while before you see some real progress. That's hard to say, but uh, long term, we're very bullish on it. Yeah, there there, are, there does seem to be a lack of short term catalyst though, which is kind of the um, yeah. the risk with with lemonade. You may be sitting on paper yeah. losses for a, a yeah. very long time, and then it might just pop yeah. overnight. But it might be in twenty twenty seven, and all of a sudden it goes like fifteen x like yeah. Tesla did. That may be yeah. the way it pans there, out. There is a lot of I mean, we study Tesla so much, but there is actually a lot of similarities between Tesla and uh, lemonade in some senses, like the business model disruption, like traditional. Uh, auto makers had to go through dealership models, you know, and Tesla's direct mm -hmm. selling lemonade, traditional insurance have all these kind of agents or, you know, and lemonade just goes right to the, you know, there's no real agents necessary. It's all, you know, direct to consumer with the app and technology. So mm -hmm. there's, there, there's a lot of interesting parallels, vertical integration, building from the ground, their own thing, infrastructure from kind of from the ground up for the most part. Um, so there's a lot of interesting parallels there. All right. Next question from Stan Marge. What do you think of Rocket Lab launch frequency? Thirty-nine days on average, two thousand twenty-two included. Um, I mean, the launch frequency uh, or the cadence of the launches, I think, is largely delayed because of the COVID restrictions in New Zealand. Is my understanding from previous interviews, listening to Peter Lynch talk about it. You know, Peter I Beck. think if the co Peter Beck, sorry, not Peter Lynch, Peter Beck. <laughs> so I think if the uh, it, you know once the COVID restrictions in New Zealand, which is pretty you know strict about it. Once they sort of get relaxed at some point later this year, you know, we're hoping that um, business can kind of be less frictional for, you know, getting people to see the rockets or the stuff based. And Peter Beck, you said, hasn't even been to the U.S. in years, for example, and they're building a launch site in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, um, seems like there's a lot of uh, slowing or delaying of the launch cadence because of the COVID restrictions with them. And we're hoping that, uh, you know, when that relaxes that, you know, they have a lot of product to move on their floor, they said in their in a recent interview. And I believe it, you know, they have a lot of customers signed up waiting to kind of, but the customers need to inspect the, you know, technology or deliver the, you know, there's lots of reasons they need to travel to New Zealand or whatnot. And it just slows everything down. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I think you, you broke it down really well. I mean, it's not like, other businesses where you can just like, you know, do a zoom of, of your rocket launch for your, you know, $10 million satellite that you developed and you're, you're trusting yeah. the rocket lab to develop or to, to launch successfully. Like they want people yeah. on the ground, uh, you know, delivering that, making sure that everything's, you know, 
going well, um, and that just hasn't really been possible with with New Zealand lately. So that has uh, caused a bit of a delay in, in kind of their their launch frequency. Um, ultimately, kind of like what you're saying with Lemonade, though, I, I think Rocket Lab's a longer term play. So yeah. you know anything could it's happen. Even longer in the, term in the than Lemonade one potentially. Yeah, Lemonade, you yeah. might see progress in one or two years after the Metro Mile kind of integration kind of takes effect. But Rocket Lab could be two to five years until like the market comes back to valuing the space industry. You know, the space industry is kind of like latter half of this decade, a big part of the bigger part of the economy. I, that's how I kind of view it. There was yeah. It was hot, you know, last year. And we wanted to get a piece of it with, with what we thought was undervalued relative to the, you know, top, uh, you know, SpaceX, by far the top player in the space industry that's you know evolving and so um we believe in rocket lab as being the second place to spacex and we think it can catch up in its market cap valuation comparison to spacex you know significantly and uh you know if you know when the space industry is kind of you know appreciated more by investors again we think rocket lab will be a big beneficiary of that yeah it, i think there's a, a big misunderstanding in in the space market which is you just kind of alluded to though and it, it does remind me of tesla a little bit where people didn't know how to think about tesla you know from 2012 to you know 2019 say um yeah and i think the same is true right now like if, if you look at look at the relative valuations of a, a lot of these kind of um, space startups um and kind of the ultimate tam that they're hoping to address 10 years from now like rocket labs makes a ton of sense a lot of the other ones in the space don't um, and, and I think there's not a lot of sophistication among investors of, of trying to see kind of beyond the launch business and what is the ultimate market look like and, you know, how much is it growing? So I think it may take some time for the market to kind of sort through the winners and losers in, in this space because yeah. it's so new. Yeah. And there's a lot of other maybe uh, these, like great space industry, uh, you know, companies that, you know, selling great stories, a lot of SPACs in the space industry, you know, in the last like six months or whatever but you know we really like rocket lab because they're really executing on what seems to be the hardest thing which is you know launching to lower earth orbit you know they're the only one that's successfully done it you know more than once <laughs> other than like yeah. spacex so you know and they do it consistently and they have customers and so you know all yeah, these other space i don't know if these company spacs are kind of like just big stories i don't know which one is going to pan out i don't want to try to guess which one is is going to execute or not to be honest yeah we didn't talk about this either but did you see they they had their successful like uh helicopter catch tests um i saw that a couple of days ago week, i think something. it was yeah, yeah they it every time they said right yeah so that was that was really good to see i mean that's a, a huge huge amount of innovation to you know be catching you know first stage like booster rockets with a helicopter um, yeah. and obviously they, they weren't doing that for like an operational launch this time but the, the tests went really really well uh, and it's so interesting hearing Peter Beck talk about it because it, it seems like that's uh, like something from a Mission Impossible movie that'd be super hard. And he's like, no, 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 like this is very easy relative to like heat shield, for example. So he's got like a, a such a deep technical knowledge and is very kind of straight shooting with what's actually hard versus what just like appears to be difficult, uh, but actually from a technical standpoint is not. So but it's, it's good to see them kind of continuing to march down this path because that, that bodes well for their cost control going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I read somewhere that they got that uh, helicopter catching uh, idea from like maybe the Russians or, or maybe it was the US military. I, some other some military was doing it, trying it at some point in the past or something. So it's not the first time people have tried to catch it with helicopters is my is my is what I'm saying. I think it was tried, but it is innovative for a commercial, you know, it hasn't been done in a long time. And there's no private companies that seem to be doing it. So it's kind of cool to see them executing on that. Yeah.
All right, maybe one more question. Let's see. Okay, let's do one more question from Mike. How realistic do you think it is that the multiples drop by half so that all valuations will get cut in half and not come back up for a longer time period, like 10 years? That is a great question. I think it is a very realistic possibility everyone should be prepared for. Um, I don't think it's probable, but I do think it's it's realistic. I would I would put it at a, you know, 10 to 30% chance, 20% chance and it's significant. You know, you don't want to, you know, <laughs> uh, play Russian roulette with a, with a gun that is five barrel and, you know, so you don't want to use margin if, uh, you're going to be totally screwed if everything gets cut in half from here. Right. So that, that, that's what mm -hmm. we're trying to prepare for that type of outcome, because it's very possible, you know, everything could get cut in half. Um, in my mind, you know, it doesn't, you know, it, whether it should or shouldn't, that's not the question, whether it will or won't, right. that's the question. And I think it's possible. Um, it shouldn't in my mind in most investors mind, probably, but doesn't mean it won't. And if it does happen, um, you know, I, I still think the best companies like Tesla will ultimately be higher than where it is now might take a few years, obviously, if it gets cut in half first, but um, it will ultimately be higher than where it is now. Um, but there's a lot of stocks that may never recover to where they are now, you know, or they might, you know, become, you know, most corporate people have to realize most stocks, most companies over the long run die or, you know, they don't fizzle out. It's very few companies that outperform the S&P 500 that make up like, there's all the kinds of statistics about it. But like, I think I read somewhere like, there's like five companies in S&P 500 over like a 10 year period that made up like all of the returns. And without those five companies, S&P 500 would have been like 0% over 10 years or something. I don't know, it's something like that. So there's this huge skew, you know, the, the generational companies mostly are what make up the returns of the market and Tesla, we believe strongly is one of them. So that's why we're very, that's our highest conviction name. I don't know. You have anything to add, man? Yeah. It's, no, that's a really great summary. It's um, I, I agree with everything you're saying. It's kind of like the, the Pareto distribution where yeah. um, like a very small minority you know, makes up like the vast majority of, of the, the kind of winners or the, the wealth. Um, but I think that certainly applies in, in stocks. Um, with this this question in particular, I think it, it's a it's a really great question because um, valuations were definitely high, like in in last year and in, in 2020 even, um, particularly for growth companies. I think there is good reason uh, for the the multiples to have been as high as they were, um, but ultimately, I think probably all boats rose too much. And and I think what you're going to see is that you'll you'll see some losers where you know th there are companies that you know didn't deserve those those sort of multiples that that don't have the Kind of underlying business fundamentals uh, uh, to warrant those those high valuations, and so those ones um, I think will will clearly not do well. But over the course of ten years, I do think um, you're you're going to have it's going to be very clear that there will be a handful of winners like Tesla, like you know Lemonade, like Rocket Lab, um, that will get an outsized share. They'll have you know kind of premium returns and. and they will uh, have premium valuations uh, yeah. for their the fact that they've got this kind of uh, premium market positioning uh, the, based on the under, underlying fundamentals. But in the in the medium term, yeah, anything anything can happen, and so I think it's a it's a really great question. Yeah, I mean, ten years seems a little strong. I mean, I can see market it's <laughs> possible though. I would say twenty percent chance it gets cut in half for a few years, but ten years seems a little strong. Uh, but anyway, yeah. a few years could be very problematic yeah, what, for people on margin. Yeah. And if there was um, like recession risk, I think is, is something we don't talk about too much. Uh, we talked a lot about macro factors, but Elon has, has talked about uh, about there potentially being like an, an economic recession this year. And if you did have that kind of uh, 
issue as well. I think that could exacerbate it. You, you imagine if it's like a, I don't know, three year, four year recession, it could certainly yep. take longer than that for valuations to kind of get back to, you know, where they were um, a year ago. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was a great chat, Matt. Uh, we got to go to a meeting soon. I know in our conference here in Miami, uh, but you know, sorry, thanks for sticking with us with the difficulties early on. And uh, we'll, this will be is recorded on our YouTube live channel for people that want to watch it. And uh, next week we'll be on again and a lot to talk about with Tesla earnings, FOMC meeting, macro market craziness, I'm sure for the next few days. Uh, so we'll see next week. Uh, we'll see you all next week. Yeah. Okay. Thanks everyone.